welcome to the Dr. Dion Show, where real conversations about diversity matter. I'm an educator and consultant specializing in diversity and inclusion. In this show, I interview top experts and people like you and me, highlighting issues like race, gender, and disability. I'm here to create change, expand your understanding of what diversity means, and to continue the mission toward equality so that everyone has a fair shake. This show is not for the faint of heart, so put on your big girl and big boy pants and ride along. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Gian Show. I'm a little torn today. I'm over the moon excited that I'm joined by my best friend in the whole world to um, talk to us today. However, we're also talking about something pretty deep today. We're talking about suicide and depression. In light of um, last week with the deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, I thought I want to have a conversation about this and hopefully um, move the needle and, and add some conversation and some insight into what it all means, because I really don't know. And I thought, who better than one of my best friends, actually my best friend, Miss Michelle Donald, who is an expert in mental health. She's going to explain to us her background and uh, her years of experience dealing with people who have challenges. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Dion. Thank you so much for having me. I am so thrilled to have you on. <laughs> I can see you always. Well, this is exciting. Um, this is like many other conversations we've had, but this time we get to share it. And I hope that all of you um, who listen get something uh, out of this. I'm sure they I'm will sure. because you are fabuloso. <laughs> so should I start uh, as you recommended? Should I start with a bit of an introduction? Yeah, for myself. Ask, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. So I am Michelle Donald, and um, I am an occupational therapist by background with over 20 years of experience in healthcare, with most of my clinical experience being in mental health. Uh, here in Toronto, I spent about eight years in the earlier part of my career learning a lot in both inpatient and outpatient settings at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, first as a clinician and then as a mental health educator. So I wanted to preface today by saying that my my opinions and my um, thoughts are really based um, a lot are based really on my experience as an occupational therapist and as um, an educator um, in mental health. Um, I also have a recent master's degree in health management. So as you can imagine, I've had um, some quite varied experience um, uh, since then, working in home care, working in long-term care, and uh, but but just again to say that I'm not a physician and that uh, you know what I base my uh, my thoughts on or is my experience in mental health as an occupational therapist awesome so, and, and it's going to be very very useful and can you just explain to people what is an occupational therapist yeah, so an occupational therapist is someone who helps people with varied needs and varied types of disabilities to function at their optimal best. So um, a lot of times that has to do with rehabilitation, if we're talking about some physical disabilities. In mental health specifically, um, occupational therapists help people to um, learn how to do or redo some of the things that they need in order to function in their social lives, in terms of relationships, in order to manage and um, be their best self in their their occupation or their work life and in self-care. I thank you so much for explaining that. So so that's that's a, a good segue into the topic. 
So definitely people, there are people who are in the workplace who struggle with depression. Um, can, you, can you just um, explain to us what depression is? And sure. how, does it, how does it manifest itself in people? Yeah, I think I think it's really important that you know there's people everywhere um, that we might notice in the workplace that we might notice um, in our in our social circles, um, even with our in, within our own families, uh, um, you know, notably. And uh, knowing how to recognize some of those signs and symptoms is really key. So I'm happy to share what those are. Um, again, um, what I'm doing is essentially quoting those from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the um, what the psychiatrist or physicians would use um, for a formal diagnosis. But this is also how we flag, certainly when we do education, um, what the symptoms are of depression, and then that way we can all become more familiar with what we're looking for. And I'll sort of highlight um, through that what I think are um, uh, key points to emphasize because one of the common questions that I hear is, um, well, you know, depression is how is it really different from someone being sad? And we really use that very loose, you know, we use that that term loosely, right? Like you and I probably done that. We feel, oh, feel, you know, it's been a depressing day, or the weather is depressing, or I feel depressed. But what we're talking about here is really clinical depression, and those signs and symptoms are different, and they're more intense primarily. Okay. So what, what, we're, um, what we're talking about in terms of the symptoms, so we're talking about five or more of the following symptoms that I'm going to describe. And they have to be present during the same two-week period. So it's, oh. that's the intensity piece. Oh, yeah, over two weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they represent a change from previous functioning okay. for them. Because we know that mood is somewhat of a continuum. So we're talking about a change from previous functioning and five or uh, five or more of the following symptoms during the same two-week period. So those symptoms are depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. That's the first symptom. So we're talking about in very intense. We're talking about markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. Most of the day, nearly every day. Huh. Okay. Third, significant weight loss or um, overeating, weight gain. And this is um, a change in 5% of your body weight, one way or the other, more or less. Okay. okay. And that's happening again over a, a two week period. Yeah, over a quick period of time. Um, four, insomnia or hyperinsomnia nearly every day. So we're talking about not being able to sleep uh -huh. nearly every day. We're talking about um, changes in how people move. So they call this psychomotor agitation, but it's really a fancy way of saying that we're moving too quickly, like restless, 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 or really slowing down and moving almost in slow motion. So movement is impacted because of the depression. Okay, so, okay, that's, thank you for sharing Fatigue that. or loss of energy. Again, nearly every Okay, mm -hmm. so thanks for sharing that. So, when a per, I'm looking at this list here, and I can think about times where I, you know, you were there when I lost my parents, and I tell you, I, I can check off a bunch of these things here, that I, and I know when I'm beyond two weeks, um, and actually, that's probably why I went to counseling, and that's why I'm able to sit here today. Um, but now that you put this kind of in, in, in context, uh, 
in retrospect, I can see now that I probably was depressed. So I'm, I'm asking mm -hmm. the question, does a person know when they're depressed? Because sometimes. sometimes they're just probably just coping and just going about their business and thinking that it's something, it, it may pass or, or that's just how life is or that's how things are. Um, and I know in my case, I, I know I had something to compare it to. I knew I was something that's really markedly different um, in terms of who I was and my mood and what I was doing. But, but how do, do people know that they're depressed and can people around other, those people recognize when they're depressed? Yeah, so that's a really good question. In my experience, people have really different uh, varying levels of awareness in terms of their depression, maybe um, based on whether they've been experiencing this for a long period of time, whether this has been a lifelong um, struggle. And uh, for many people, they become very aware of the symptoms, which is very, very helpful. Um, I know that you uh, grounded um, this uh, uh, question in your experience um, grieving the loss of your parents. And so I just wanted to make the point that um, bereavement or grief can result in an episode of depression. It doesn't mean that someone is clinically depressed. Mm, so tell me more, please. How do you Yeah, so so we talked about some of those symptoms and there are three others that I'll that I'll that I'll add to the list. I know it was a super long list, but um, the, the 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 those list of symptoms and that intensity in terms of it happening within that the, you know that two week period and every day almost every day that kind of experience can happen to someone when they're grieving you can see the exact same thing and they can experience the same kind of symptoms and in that case it's a it's an episode of depression usually and again I'm not a physician but usually um, they're not diagnosed with um, clinical depression um, what what the um, what when if, if you go to the doctor with some of the symptoms that I talked about, they will uh, usually ask you um, if you've had a a, um, a loss and if they try to determine whether this is an episode of depression that's resulting from a, a grieving or a bereavement type of experience. Okay, so then so they so and how do they make that not not to get too technical, but how do they make that distinction? I guess there's I guess there are there are tests that they can do to determine. Uh, if it's just if it's kind of episodic versus a long a lifelong struggle, like how how do they test for that? Is you know, it, in, in mental what is it? Uh, well, in mental health in general, it's a, a, a and, and this is not the case for every type of mental illness, but it really is a, um, very important that you get a good history. Right. So whether someone's been dealing with it for a long time, what are some of the other circumstances around their life? What is the level of intensity? And again, it's five or more of those symptoms. So they're really clustered together. And so, again, you know, uh, not a physician, but what I've what I've seen and what I've been taught and what we train people to recognize in other people, which I think is really, um, really what we're trying to get at. Like if we can recognize these symptoms, if we can see someone, a coworker, a family member, a friend who seems to have this level of intensity of difficulty um, sleeping, difficulty um, managing um, their mood, difficulty with relationships. Um, there were a few other, um, you know, besides the, the fatigue that we often see, um, there were a few other symptoms, feelings of worthlessness, like excessively feeling guilt. And that's, in a, again, happening uh, very frequently, um, and a diminished uh, ability to think or concentrate. And then the one that we have been, um, I think, uh, thankfully, uh, 
you know, something, something, uh, you know, more reflective thinking has to come from everything, even if it's something negative. And what we're faced with now is thinking about this last symptom, which is um, suicide or thoughts of suicide. So it's five or more of those symptoms clustered together, rather than a blood test that someone would be looking, um, looking to, to make that diagnosis. So I, I appreciate that, but I, I'm, but I'm struggling. Because in the same week, Kate Spade passed away um, via suicide, and I have to share that um, actually my husband Robert uh, worked for CNN for some many 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 sorry many many years and actually helped launch Anthony Anthony Bourdain's show Parts Unknown. So he had the privilege of of actually sitting down with him, talking to him on 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 different several occasions over the years. Um, they had meals together, not one-on-one, -on -one, but group meals, and there were always like really cool discussions. And and um, and like the world, it seems everyone was shocked. Like my husband was completely shocked and just thrown completely off when we got the news that he that 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 he committed suicide. So from the and those are people who were close to him, and people who work with him, and there. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there were there signs. And so that's the difficulty I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling here. How do you really know if somebody is, and because sometimes people can actually mask it pretty, pretty well, their depression. And actually I saw an NBC, an NBC report this morning talking about people um, often, they, um, they, they, they're very jovial on the outside and they, they mask the depression with jokes mm -hmm. and, and, and well, Robin Williams is probably the yes, perfect example. Fine example. He was just phenomenal and, and brilliant and, and, and funny and, and that was devastating to the world for him to, to, to commit suicide. So, so can you help me unpack that? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make sense of that. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I don't know if I can help with that one. You know, that's, that's the really tough one is that people are going to, uh, present very differently. In my experience, I've seen people who you would never imagine and, you know, other people who have um, maybe circumstances or struggled with other kinds of mental illness that you might um, more so understand if they had those kinds of thoughts or feelings about their life. So how do we, you know, how do any of us determine the many different um, complexities of, of an individual, of the brain, right? Yes, we're talking absolutely. about the brain, yes, right? This absolutely. is depression. And I think we're talking about the brain and, and we're starting, we've made some progress with, with that, right? Where people are realizing that um, this is not necessarily something that someone can control. We have the people with the most, you know, who have lots of money and lots of resources, smart people, you know, people who are very accomplished and well-known, total strangers who maybe aren't as well-known or, you know, successful in the way that we would define it, um, maybe not as well-educated, and it touches everyone. Yes. So, how can we say, you know, what are the set of circumstances that lead to it? And if we can't, you know, if we, if we don't know that exactly, because it is a brain um, disorder, we know that's linked to um, an imbalance in, our, um, in the chemicals in our brain. But other than that, if you can imagine how complex that is, then I guess what I'm trying to say is how com complex it would be to know how um, someone, would, um, someone would express 
uh, the symptoms or not express them, you know, and, and their ability or inability to mask it. I mean, I would say in my experience um, with people close to me that it is possible to um, to recognize maybe not all, but some of these symptoms, my own personal opinion. I hear. Well, I appreciate that. And, but you did kind of touch on something, and we have discussed this um, previously to this, this um, interview, about the notion of assuming that depression is something that's that people can just snap out of they can snap out of it and that and that um we're we're saying you know what's what's wrong with you why why are you why are you so sad just just get better and and i remember you likened it to another disease that like we wouldn't tell uh, someone with cancer to say you know what why are you upset with you have can't you have just explain to me what you said, please. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if, let's use your example of a coworker, a coworker comes to you and says, you know, I've been feeling um, really tired, really thirsty, I'll, uh, you know, in a way that I haven't before. Um, the other day I fainted and I think I might have diabetes. Can you imagine trying to convince that person that, those are not the symptoms that they're really experiencing or perhaps they don't need to feel that way. So, so let me put it in another way. So someone comes, someone instead comes to you and says, um, you know, I don't know what's going on with me, but lately I can't get up out of bed. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling, um, you know, I'm feeling really hopeless about my life. I, and, and then, you know, what we're talking about here today, you know, if a person, God forbid, comes to you and says, you know, I just don't think my life is worth living. What are our common responses? We try to tell the person why they shouldn't feel that way without recognizing that those are their symptoms in the same way that someone who has diabetes or cancer is expressing to you their physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. We just learned a few minutes ago, I shared those symptoms of depression. They're sharing those symptoms with you and you're pretty much telling them, that's not what you're experiencing because you have so much in your life. You've got children, you've got this, you've got that. And so don't feel that way. Don't feel those symptoms. Which, and I, go ahead, mm -hmm. which, which, which in essence sounds pretty dismissive for somebody who's already, who's already struggling. It does. And you know how, um, how, uh, invalidation can really lead to a very different kind of conversation or, you know, most importantly, to shutting it down altogether. So what should somebody say to somebody who says that they are um, feeling like they want to end their life and they feel suicidal? What, what do you say to somebody? I think the most important thing is to listen, to first make no judgment. Mm -hmm. No judgment, um, not to unpack it in a way that you might want to with your own logic, because going back to something you said, they cannot control it. They can't just snap out of it. And so in that way, they also maybe aren't able to apply in that moment, in that moment, not able to apply the same kind of logic you would to whatever that problem is that they're experiencing. So I think first to listen to have no judgment. I think what most people are comfortable with as a response is, you know, uh, what can I do to help? I think that's a very easy one for almost anyone. Um, and, uh, and what people might be most comfortable with as a starting point. I know that what we learned as clinicians, and this might be very interesting for people to think about, it may not be the first time you've heard it because I've been heard it on the media in the last couple of weeks myself. We learned to ask the person who is telling you, I'm thinking about 
ending my life. I'm thinking about committing suicide. For you to think about asking them, have you thought about a plan? Do you have a plan? And that's very scary. Really? Yeah. Very scary. Ask the person if they have a plan. That's how we were trained. Okay, why? Well, what is that? We ask them that because we want to figure out how imminent is the danger to that, to themselves, to that person. So, you know, are they telling you, no, I, I, I just started thinking about, I don't have a plan at all. Well, then there's an opportunity to link. There's a little bit of time, right? Where you can link them to some help. If you're at work, maybe there's, you know, your employment assistance program, but you can certainly make a suggestion. There's a little bit of time. If that person tells you, um, yeah, I, I have a plan and I don't know, I, I, I tried it before. I had the same method worked out before and I didn't follow through with it. Well, you know, this is a little bit less time and you might really want to, you know, um, consider telling them how very, you know, um, you know, really stressing to them that they need to get help. I understand though, I acknowledge that when we are health professionals and we're taught to do that, we have resources, right? We have a, we have a team behind us. Um, but I can remember being in situations, I was in a situation where I had a, a home care client who told me that she had just uh, recovered from back surgery. However, she struggled with lifelong depression and she had pain medication readily available, available to her because of the recent back surgery. And she told me that she had a plan um, that she was going to take all of those pills that night. Wow. Yeah. So how and, did, how did you, of course you had to report that, but how, how did you handle that? I did something that anyone else can do, and that's what we, we were trained to do, and that is to call the police and explain the situation. Mm. They actually have a responsibility to show up and to question the person themselves. And if they also feel the same way, they can take the person to the hospital against their will. Now, I'm not saying that that's how you want it, that's the route you want to go. Um, you know, I don't even know for sure that that's the starting point, but I'm saying that, you know, there are options out there. Yes. And when we know that someone is in trouble, when Someone has told you in that very trusted relationship, right? Can you imagine being so close to someone that they would actually tell you that this is what they're thinking? They really trust you. They trust you. Yes. So, so, you know, back to, to what we should do, you know, ask how you can help. Listen, don't judge. And if you feel really brave, ask if they have, if they have a plan. And, and as you're saying that too, sometimes you just said that those, the, the person is trusting that person to share that information. But then I'm sure if, if you are the person who, who was told that, you also probably wrestle with the thought of betraying that person's trust by telling somebody outside. Yeah. It's, yes. it's kind of like, it's, it's gotta be like a double-edged sword. It's gonna be very difficult yes. because you're, you know, you and want to help out, but you, but you have this information, you have to act on it. Absolutely. And, I, and that's why I completely acknowledge that even though I've been hearing that sort of on and off with some of the experts that have been speaking um, through the media since these unfortunate um, suicides, um, I have myself recognized that I was taught that as a clinician, but I had that backing. And to your point, I had the relationship with the patient or client, and they knew it was that type of relationship. Right. They knew that when they told me that I would have a responsibility. But if a friend or a coworker or a family member approaches you, you haven't necessarily set out those those boundaries or those guidelines um, at the onset. You're, you're a friend. So I, I fully recognize that people may not be um, you know, comfortable with that. I know that I um, that one thing that is 
um, very much part of the, the, the literature around suicide is that it is a misconception um, that talking about it will give someone the idea. Uh-huh. And, I, and I say that that's kind of similar to saying, what, what's your plan? Thinking that someone who's been brave enough to share that with you is actually going to act on it because you asked them that question. I hear you. That's well, I our think, fear, I think. Absolutely. I think it's a, a perfect um, moment to share the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, 1-800-273-T-A-L-K. So I want to switch gears for a second. Uh, we, we did kind of touch on the fact that actually Anthony Bourdain and also Kate Spade had children. And... Um, I remember having a conversation shortly after both of their passings and um, people saying, you know, they had children. How do they leave their children behind? How do those children feel that those, the, the parents just left them and, and they're probably going to have abandonment, abandonment issues and so on. And um, we talked about this and you, you, you again, shed light on, on, the, on the, the, the matter saying that we're looking at things logically when, 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 in, when in essence we're dealing with somebody's brain or somebody who is not well. So can you, can you expand on that for me? Yeah, it absolutely broke my heart. Cause as you know, both of us have, well, I think you have 14, but I have a 13 year old right at this moment. And so um, when I heard that, I absolutely, just felt for both of these these children that they would now be left to deal with um, the remnants of, of this and to hear about it in the media and all the things that go along with that. Um, I also, because I think of my you know experience and training, I also um, knew that um, people would be judging that and they would be, as you said, applying this logic and saying, well, if you're thinking of it, you know, it's selfish, right? We've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. It's a selfish act. Like this person was not thinking about their children. And I would say, you know, if you get to a point where suicide is one of your symptoms of depression, you know, this is so severe that you cannot apply logic. It is, it is an illness. You know, I'll say that again. It is an illness and it's an illness of the mind and you can't concentrate and you can't um, uh, think through the problems. And um, I think that it's really broke my heart that they had children that they left behind. And it broke my heart that both of these individuals would be judged, not only in their life when they were living, but in their death, they're being judged for, for having this illness. And there's so much stigma. We've made some progress, but to me, that's a little bit of that leftover stigma, that little bit that's still not well understood. Absolutely. We've just managed to get over the hump where we've heard a lot of professional athletes come forward and talk about, um, admit that they are dealing with, with mood disorders and, it's it's fantastic because it helps us to see that it's okay to talk about it. But what I still see is that judgment piece not completely falling away. Um, especially, I think suicide is that piece of depression that um, is it, it still needs a lot of conversation. It's the most uncomfortable piece. I, I thank you, and I agree with you. So so we look for symptoms in people, and what else can we do 
to help with the, with this issue to to shed more light on it to help people in our communities what what should we be doing how should we be how should we be behaving i think we need to become much more aware of other people now more than ever this is my you know opinion but i know i share it with so many other parents and people we have technology we know the benefits of it but it also means that a lot of times we're really not paying attention to other people Absolutely. and what they're doing how they're behaving and even to obvious things that their their body language is is trying to tell us and even maybe verbally people are 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 flat out telling you what they want you to hear and we just don't hear it as you know we don't hear it as much because we're so distracted we have constant constant stimulation i would say that you know let let's let's be responsible for each other right like let's actually pay attention to what's going on with our neighbor with our you know schoolmates with our co-workers Absolutely. You know, and maybe if we're actually paying attention and we see it as part of our responsibility, um, we can have a very different conversation and we can have a conversation when we're paying attention. And having the courage to actually ask somebody, hey, yeah. are you, hey how are you today? What's going on? Just kind hmm. of asking. And being prepared to actually listen, right? Like how many times do we pass people if we're talking about work? Yes. I'm, I'm sure I did it today. And you walk past people and you say, how are you? They say, fine, you keep walking and you don't, you're not yeah. really asking, right? Absolutely. That's very true. That's very true. You know, where is that sense of community? Um, I think, you know, the other thing we can do is um, let our kids know that it is okay to not be okay. I, I, yeah, I, I try to do that with my kids and I, we've had this conversation before where, you know, it, not only are you, you know, um, you know, I wouldn't put it on the kids to say you're responsible for, you know, other people and how they're feeling for sure. But like, if you notice something, even in a friend, um, you, you know, in terms of how they're feeling or their behavior suddenly change. I mean, it could be a myriad of, of issues, but yes. it's, it's, it's always important to come to an adult. I, I, I think we want that message and we want the message that um, it, it's okay to say you're not okay. Absolutely. And, and to spread that and for these, you know, um, kids to know that, uh, you know, for us to help this, the, the generations upcoming to know that mental health is, is everyone's business, you know? And, and what I mean by that is, is we all have a responsibility. It's, it's a broad thing. And I think that people have um, lived in secret with it for too long. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, and it's very common. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, the, it, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. Which is unbelievable. Well, I so appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise and um, just teaching us on, on this issue that I'm sure is not going away. It's not going to go away, as you said. It's, you know, it is something we have to live with. And how do we manage it? Are we going to keep sweeping it under the rug? Or are we going to actually just look at it and say, you know what, this is a common thing. And how are we going to help people who are suffering in silence? So I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your, um, your insight, your intellect, your experience as a clinician, 
uh, in mental health. And I'm going to share the number one more time before we get your information and find out how people can reach you. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK. T-A-L-K. Where can people find you, Michelle? Thank you. Well, people can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I would love to continue this conversation. I think that's what this is all about. It's all about opening up the channels, having that conversation long after the, um, you know, the news stories are, um, you know, off the table. We want to still be having these conversations and building our community. So I, you know, would love to continue that. Um, at this point, you can reach me on LinkedIn. We can, you know, um, certainly continue this conversation, I'm sure, on um, Dion's uh, social media channels as well. Great. And your name again is Michelle Donald yes. on LinkedIn. So it's at Michelle Donald on LinkedIn. Yes. Wonderful. Absolutely. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, if you um, got something out of the show, please feel free and um, write me or write Michelle and um, make some comments also on um, my iTunes page. And we hope again, to continue the conversation. And as so when the news cycle ends, and it will, and we're onto something else, we would still be interested in talking about this issue. Michelle will be the expert in talking about this issue. So thanks so much, Michelle, for coming on today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, darling.